That same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have with one another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou the only stranger in Jerusalem who hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be crucified to death. But we trusted that it had been he which, had, which should have redeemed Israel. And besides this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and they found it even as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass that as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together and with them, uh, with them saying that the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared unto Simon. And then they told them what things were done in the way, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word.
The story is almost so familiar that you could probably recite it by heart if you have attended church or Sunday school to amount to anything during your lifetime. Jesus, of course, uh, had been through that enormous week, the greatest week in all of the history of the universe. We talked about it last Sunday. He, after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, had gone up to the city of Jerusalem. And when he had gone to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the word had gotten out that he was coming, that he was coming to the festival of the Passover. This would mean that almost two million people would crowd into that city, that they would come from every village and from far-off distances and far-off lands to be there for the Passover celebration. Remember that the Passover does not celebrate a fable. The Passover celebrates a fact, a fact of history, that God brought his people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the new fact that he is going to institute with the Lord's Supper is the fact of his event in dying on the cross as the full, consummate, and complete sacrifice for our sins, and which shall be celebrated until he comes again. Well, at any rate, he had gone up to Jerusalem, and the thousands upon thousands had lined the streets to see him. They had ideas of their own about the Messiah and what he should do. And they remembered very well what palm branches mean. And just as we have some little palm branches in the windows today, the people had other palm branches that reminded them of one who was a great hero of theirs and whose symbol was that branch. And they thought that maybe, just maybe, God's Messiah had at last come and that what he was going to do was what they wanted him to do, which was to overthrow the iron yoke of Rome overthrow Rome with all of its terrible power and might and brutality and force and deliver them from the bondage of these alien people who had crucified so many of them. And so they came out into the streets shouting Hosanna. And Hosanna, as I said last Sunday, does not mean praise the Lord. Hosanna means save us. Save us, sir. And you can imagine that this created a little bit of discussion up and down amongst the ranks of Roman soldiers when they saw this enormous crowd gathering and heard these people saying, Save us, sir. But it all seemed so incongruous. Riding upon this little donkey, his feet almost dragging the ground, he didn't look like this type of warrior savior that they were looking for. He didn't look like the type of person who was going to sweep the Roman soldiers into oblivion and raise up a great insurrection against Rome and lead them to some big political liberation and freedom. His liberation theology was not what we talk about today. No, it was a bigger liberation than that. It was the liberation of a soul born anew into the kingdom of God. And they wanted a different kind of thing. And so, before the week's out, 
they had heard in these two who had gone from their village of Emmaus. And they were probably among the 70 disciples. Notice the word disciple is mentioned of them. Not apostle, not one of the 12, but of the disciples. And we know that he sent out 70 two by two. And perhaps since Cleophas' name is mentioned, he was one of that group of 70. We do not know his who his companion was. But we know that the word must have gotten out that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and they were determined that they were going to be there because it would be an exciting week. And so they went. And I expect that when they walked those seven miles up to Jerusalem, that they were thinking, what a great week this is going to be. The crowds will come out and see him, and surely he will announce who he is and what he's going to do, and it will be the great overthrow of Rome, and a grand new kingdom of God will be ushered in. They knew the miracles that he had wrought. They had seen the lepers cleansed. They had seen the blind able to see and the lame walk. They had seen him and knew that they had never been upon the face of this planet anyone who had done the things that he had done. And the words which he spoke, those matchless golden words which he preached, they could not quite altogether take in and which we do not take in. But we spend a long lifetime seeking to learn and let it soak in and transform us. But they thought, surely he'll do things the way we want them done. But he doesn't do that. And so... By the end of the week, having seen him nailed on the cross out at Calvary, having heard all the distressing tales that had been told that morning, which they had put aside as just confusion and the idle gossip of women, which they would not want to listen to, they had started on their road back home disappointed in Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed in Jesus? Have you ever prayed to him with all your heart to reveal something to you that you wanted your way and he just didn't do it your way? And you felt brokenhearted that he had let you down? Well, they felt let down by Jesus himself and they walked on their way home confused and disillusioned and disappointing, thinking that all of their hopes were like those faded palm branches in the streets, wilting away and withered and in the dust. And who should come up beside them? And who may come up alongside you when your heart is sad and you are disappointed and you have prayed? Jesus himself came. And one of the lessons that this speaks to me is that you don't have to be a great or a famous person for Jesus to come and to speak to you. I have great respect for the present Pope in Rome. I like to look at his face. He has one of the best faces in the whole world to me. I I reverence him very much. But here are two people, one whose name we know, one whose name we don't know. And they are brokenhearted and disappointed. 
And you may be thinking, all I am is an ordinary housewife. All I am is just a school teacher or a secretary, a worker in a factory, or a small child, or a teenager, or an old person. Why should he be interested in me? But it does not take someone of outstanding feats and accomplishments or zeal or preeminence for Jesus to be interested. He cares for every single one whom he has made. And so he joins himself to this crowd, to this too, and he walks in back of them and listens to their conversation. And I am sure that Luke, who writes this down for us, must later have gone back to interview Cleopas himself. And he said, now, Cleopas, I'm writing things out, and I want to put it down all very carefully. And I want you to tell me exactly what happened. And Cleopas said, I can tell you, I've told this story a thousand times. I can take you out on the road to Emmaus and take you to the very spot where he came along in back of us. And do you know that I was not even civil to him? When he spoke to us, I didn't even want to look back and speak to him. And when he said to us, what are these things that you're talking about? When we were talking loudly and gesticulating with our arms flailing the air at all that had happened that week, I was scarcely civil to him. And he said to us, what things? What things? Can you imagine this? Of all the people on God's earth to ask Jesus of Nazareth, where were you on Good Friday? Where were you at Calvary? Are you the only pilgrim who came to Jerusalem on that day? who does not know what happened out there on that cross at Golgotha, at Calvary? Are you the only one? And he says, what things? Tell me about it. And then they say, well, we thought that Jesus of Nazareth was a mighty prophet of God and that he was going to redeem Israel. And then we are told how Jesus begins to speak to them, finding out what the concerns of their heart are, that they thought that the Redeemer of Israel would do it so differently, and that they are confused by what the women have told them about the resurrection that very morning, and about their vision of angels and about some of their own number who had gone to the tomb and looked and had seen it just like the women had said, but they had not yet seen him at the time they had left. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, your hearts are not only sad, but your hearts are very slow, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You've read your Bible, but you believed only what you wanted to believe. You didn't believe that the Messiah would have to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. 
You did not know that it was in his stripes that we should be healed. You did not realize that his face was to be marred in such a way that people would not want him nor desire him. That he didn't come to establish the sort of thing you wanted. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he began to interpret the scriptures for them. Was it not necessary that Christ should have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then he goes all the way back to Moses and all the prophets, and he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. And Cleophas must have said to Luke, Luke, I tell you, it must have been hours that went by, but it seemed like seconds, like a great capsule of time into a moment. Everything was clear. And all of a sudden, the first stars of evening were coming, and we were already at Emmaus. And he started to go on, and we said, No, no, don't go on. Abide with us. That's where we got that beautiful evening hymn which Henry Late wrote. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. So he goes in and he abides with them. And they sit down to take a meal. And one of the greatest of all the Christian artists in the history of the whole world, Rembrandt, in his painting of scenes that have to do with the incarnation and with the resurrection, he grew intensely more devotional in his faith as his life passed by. And towards his death, the only thing that he wouldn't give up was one of his pictures that he loved very much and his Bible, which he kept to the last day that he lived. Rembrandt chose this scene, this Emmaus scene, of Jesus revealing himself to these two as what he wished to convey about the resurrection, this living Christ in this humble home comes in and shares a meal. Now, I do not think it was a sacramental meal like the Lord's Supper. But I think there must have been something about the way that Jesus said, said the blessing that people never forgot. We so often dawdle through our prayers, or we mumble grace in a rapid-fire manner. We do some crazy thing that scarcely shows that we mean anything by saying grace at all. But when Jesus thanked God for his food, there must have been something very special about it. Because there was a reverence that he realized that the Lord of the universe, who had made bread, seed for the sower, and bread for us to eat, that when he took up the bread, and returned thanks. They knew while their eyes were closed and they opened and looked that this was Jesus. That was just too familiar. And it flickered into their 
mind in a moment. And all their hope came back to them. Their sad hearts and their slow eyes have now been able to see the meaning of the scriptures. And their hearts begin to burn within them. And they begin to recall and to recount what he had spoken to them. And so great joy fills their heart, but then he's gone from their presence. And then they share their faith. They share their faith. They jump up from where they are. And we know that they must have been close to the 11. And by the time the gospel of Luke is written, the 11 are referred to because Judas' defection is well known. And they know exactly where they will be, and they run all those seven miles back into Jerusalem, breathless, to get there and to tell the experience that has been theirs. And so he speaks to us today. He comes to us when our hearts are sad. He comes to us when our eyes are dull, when we have not been reading our Bibles like we should have been reading them, and we have not been receiving from the reading what we should have been receiving to bless us and help us to live the day for the Lord. We have not been seeing his truth. And so we have nothing to share with others. We have no experience with Christ. Do we read the word of God asking him to speak to our hearts? Do you sometimes look up from your devotions with tears in your eyes because Christ has made your heart to burn as you have looked at the meaning of the scriptures and what it is teaching you? A couple of weeks ago, we had a day of prayer here at Montreat for the students and any in the community who wish to participate. There was a person in our church who months ago had spoken a harsh word quickly and in haste to someone else, but had left it uncorrected. And one of the things that we have to do when we come to the Lord, you remember Jesus said, If you come to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, or if you remember you've got something against him, you best leave your gift alone and go and be reconciled to your brother and then bring the gift. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The heavens will turn to brass. I cannot live in sin and ask in prayer, thinking that God is going to hear me, he will not hear me. His word plainly teaches that. The prayer he will hear is a prayer for forgiveness and the prayer for the strength to go and make it right. And so this person sought out the one who had been offended and said, I said something months ago in haste. And I want to ask your forgiveness for what I said. The other person was so overcome that this one scarcely knew what to say back. 
But when they had embraced each other, the other person said, I should have made known to you the fact that I held a grudge against you. And so when that was cleared out of the way, we saw a remarkable answer to prayer. God did a lot of good, and he can always do a lot of good with a truly repentant heart. Look at Peter. He wept bitterly. But he went to his Savior. Judas took his money back to the temple and threw it in there and went out and got a rope and hanged himself. But God can do great things with a truly penitent heart. I have often thought that if President Nixon had just been willing to go before the American people and simply honestly confess what had done, people are willing to forgive. And I believe there could have been forgiveness. Great things can be spoken and done to a truly repentant heart. So these people have their eyes opened, and then they have a new faith to share. And their new faith, which they share, makes them to know that Jesus is alive. He is alive. And they are going to be a part of the spread of that kingdom to the very ends of the earth. It's going to spread. And it's going to go. And they are going to realize it in this new and wonderful way. Our Scottish Covenanters on the purple heather of the hills in Scotland met to take the Lord's Supper and to meet and would not give up their faith. And Donald Cargill, I used to go down to the Cowgate in Edinburgh where the old cobblestones are still there, where he was taken out and placed on a scaffold to die. And when the people who were believers saw him being led up to the scaffold to be hanged, there were women weeping and people that were all in tears. And Donald Cargill called back to them, saying, Don't weep for me. I have gotten me Christ. And Christ have gotten for me the victory. Some of you won't be alive next year. But will Christ have gotten for you the victory over death? Someone you know and love won't be alive next year. But the faith in Jesus, of which we speak and know, which is a real event, not a metaphor, but objective reality, tells us that he has the victory over sin, my sin, and over death and suffering and all that's gone wrong in this life, and that he brings me into his presence, into heaven forever. i got to close, but listen now, not to my voice, but listen to the voice of Jesus. I'd rather for you to go out of the church today remembering that. All power is given unto me in heaven 
and in earth. That's what Jesus Christ said. Jesus Christ said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus Christ said, abide in me and I in you. Without me, ye can do nothing. Jesus Christ said, and I loved it this morning when that little boy was named Nelson Bell. You can tell often how good a man is by the number of people who get named for him. I've often wondered about George Whitfield and John Wesley. There are a lot of John Wesleys, but I never knew any George Whitfield. But I've known a lot of Nelson Bells. And the night before he died, he said these last words which Jesus said down here in the auditorium to a crowd of young people. If any man opened the door, I will come in. Do you believe that? If you do, and if you've never accepted him as your Savior before, when we sing this last hymn, if you want to, you can walk down the aisle and show that you're accepting him today. Or if you want to accept him in some more private way, go ahead and do it that way. The important thing is going to be that you do it. Whether you walk down the aisle forward or down the aisle going out of the church, the important thing is that Christ is in your heart. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.